Today we celebrate All Saints Day. And with thousands of churches around the world, this is a meaningful tradition. When we remember the cloud of witnesses, when we remember people who are no longer with us here, but they continue in our hearts and their legacy continues because we know of how they impacted our lives. Perhaps you can think of someone who made a difference in your faith, who brought you to the feet of Jesus, or who picked you up when your faith was weakened. Today, we are also mindful of the thousands of people who lost their life due to the COVID-19 pandemic, to over 200,000 people in the United States alone. But beyond that, many more people have been lost and many families grieve today. So I ask you that as we light this candle, we think of them and we give thanks to God for those people who made a difference and we give thanks to God for the peace that surpasses understanding for the gift of eternal life. May we remember those cloud of witnesses. I will say more about the importance on remembering and remembering what God has done. But before I get to that, I'm just wondering if there's anyone out there. I know that many or more of us watch the service online going to the website. But I am also aware that there are uh, some of you who joined right at 9.30 on Sunday. So I'm wondering if any of you out there are just as eager as I am to stop receiving the text, the phone calls, the emails, the overload of the campaign commercials, all that have to do with the importance of voting, make sure we vote, and to whom we, or for whom we should vote for. It has been a inundation of receiving all that kind of information. And I am ready to have that behind me. I've already voted, so technically it's kind of useless for me to receive those kind of text. But I want to say this, I get the value of it, so please, we're, we're on the home stretch of this race. Let's not be rude to those people who are calling. It is important after all and it is part of the race. We are two days away from the completion of casting our vote. I invite you to remember all that God has done through the centuries, and I invite you to be mindful and analyze and reflect how people respond to all that God has done through the centuries. The good, the bad, and the ugly, and then once again, how God continues to work through the ages. And with that, then we can be reassured that God is in control, that God is in no need of taking us back or taking control back again, regain it, 
nothing has ever gotten beyond or outside of God's sovereignty and mighty grace. So we stand affirmed no matter what, knowing that God continues to be our Lord. I have a lot to share under 30 minutes, so I want to get right to it. The scripture for today is Luke chapter 20, verses 20 through 26. It's one story within a greater story, so I have to set it up so it makes sense. So from verses 1 through 19, Jesus is preaching and teaching the gospel to the people. And then the chief priest and the scribes come with the elders and they ask Jesus about the source, his source of authority. That's verses 1 through 8. Verses 9 through 19 tells us how Jesus responds to their question. And he responds by telling a story. It's the parable. When you look at the NIV, it's the parable of the tenants. And RSV is the parable of the wicked tenants. NLT, the parable of the evil farmers. So by the time you read verse 19, it'll tell us, that when Jesus is done with the story, the scribes, the chief priest, and the leaders, the elders, were so angry because they realized that they represented in that story, they were the villains. And then they realized that the moral of the story was revealing a lack of integrity and yes, of the villain. They were so angry, they wanted to arrest Jesus, but they couldn't because of the witnesses all around. If the people watched what would have been an unwarranted arrest, that would have caused an uproar. So what did they have to do? They had to realize they failed once more to trap Jesus. They had to stand back and you can imagine perhaps how ridiculed they felt and they were angry and they were probably even more eager now to get Jesus some other way. And now we're ready to read verses 20 through 26 and the story goes like this. Keeping a close watch on him, they sent spies who pretended to be honest they hoped to catch Jesus in something he said so that they might hand him over to the power and authority of the governor. So, this is what they do. The spies questioned him. Teacher, we know that you speak and teach what is right and that you do not show partiality but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Jesus saw through this deceit and said to them, show me the coin, show me a denarius, whose portrait and inscription are on it. Caesar's, they replied. He said to them, then give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. They were unable to trap him in what he said there in public, and astonished by his answer, they became silent. Again, they were unable to trap Jesus. Today, I want to talk about three aspects of this story. Real motivations, how sin is, shows up 
in this and an aspect of the coin. The real pursuit of these leaders had nothing to do with the pursuit of justice and righteousness, fairness, and certainly nothing about love. Their pursuit was to trap Jesus by having him make a statement about a politically sensitive issue of the day to get him in trouble and have him have to face the governor. And by the way, basically to get him nailed to the cross much sooner. The question posed had to do with the taxes. And this was a very sensitive um, aspect of the time. For those who followed God, for God's people, was it necessary? Aren't God's people exempt from paying a tax to another power, to another ruler? Because by not doing so, aren't they compromising who they honor and who they follow and who is their ruler? There was that concern that maybe by paying to both or, or res giving respect to both Caesar and God, then there's a, a thing of two kingdoms going on, two rulers, when there's this belief that there's only one true God. Jesus, are you really loyal to Israel if you've come to be the king of the Jews? And then we are also to pay some um, respect to the other. How is it if you're the Messiah? How is that possible if you're the son of God? Jesus, are you going rogue then? Are you going to challenge the current system? Because of course, you could not be aligned with one if you claim to be actually a king. Jesus, Jesus, choose, choose to either accommodate yourself to the Roman law, um, to be with, to surrender to the Roman law, or rebel against it. Jesus, pick one. And it was volatile. And perhaps you're sensing how extreme that sounded. It was. And I do hope that you're seeing the similarities of how it can be extreme today. The environment of first century Judea included volatile and high anxiety. Biblical historians like Josephus recorded about um, revolts like uh, Judas the Galilean, whose stance was, if you pay any tribute to anyone but God, one commits treason. Any allegiance at all to another uh, uh, God is a betrayal and is idolatry. And that's a sin. For the zealous then, who had their calling into activist work needed, this kind of response that Jesus offered could, ha could have been seen as a softy one. Almost as if Jesus is compromising his own nature as if he's not being as bold as he should. And isn't it true that sometimes, or maybe you can see it all around us, with the high anxiety that we are witnessing around this election year, Jesus Christ, where are you? 
Come, may, may, may the wrath of your justice and righteousness make things, set things straight once and for all. And folks, I know this may sound extreme, but it is true. You know what, God? Please make it all right to the point of the wrath be upon the other party. Because if you don't, we are doomed. That's extreme too. But here's the truth. Jesus is saying, Caesar has its arena, has its place, but so does God in God's domain, and so should God be honored. And Jesus once more showed how he has not ever been guided. He wasn't guided then, and he will never be guided by political expediency. And for those of us who bear the image of Jesus Christ, the question is, who guides you? How do you go about your decision-making? The next piece I want to mention, sin. The essence of sin is humanity's failure to take its place in the covenant that God established, our covenant with God. What do I mean by that? Our human inclination is to either overreach. By that I say, I don't want to just be Christ-like. I want to be humbly, of course not God, but perhaps at least a little God. In what way? Give me more, God. Give me more of a say in this. Give me a little bit more control. Give me more certainty. Get me involved in this process. Let me help you with how to do justice. That's overreaching. And or we struggle in a sinful way of underachieving what God does call us to do and to be. God intended and calls us and equips us to follow and to truly obey. So we either overreach and or we underachieve. You notice how um, what made the folks and the, vil uh, the villains of the story, excuse me, um, it wasn't that they went out and publicly showed a sin, manifested. Jesus refers to them in a villain, in an evil sense, because of how they were pretending something that only God would know about us. What is happening in the heart? Something that maybe can trick everybody else, but God knows the heart. And pretending, in the Greek word, the original word, it comes and it's associated with the word hypocrisy. If they knew that Jesus spoke truth and Jesus was the real deal, then they should have simply accepted his teachings and follow Jesus. But the challenge was they wanted to actually call the shots, overreach, but they didn't want to actually pay the cost of humbling, of obeying Jesus Christ as a Lord and Savior, the cost of discipleship. When you and I have struggled with that, I invite you, may we always be mindful of the need to ask for forgiveness. 
for that is a sinful thought and or behavior. I want to now point out the third, something about the third piece for this text, the coin. Jesus asked for a coin, the denarius. Please know that the Caesar could call himself Augustus. And that meant that there was a deity that was including a divine aspect to the person. So that symbolism, that inscription in the coin was also the power and the title in order to create a whole system. And that does open the door for idolatry. But this particular text does not focus on idolatry because after all, from the get-go, the issue was about pretending. But I do need to mention something quickly about idolatry. God is not on the same level playing field as any political allegiance. God is sovereign and God will prevail. And no human sinfulness and no human um, hypocrisy gets the last word. It never has and it never will. If what belongs to Caesar bears his image, his face is on it, the symbol, then yes, there is space for us to be invited to, to pay the civic duty, which that is a way to understand patriotism. That has its part. Likewise, as this text is telling us, whatever belongs to God bears God's image. Caesar and what represents Caesar has its place, but does it actually own everything in life? God is the creator. Everything belongs to God. God transcends what's right here. And whatever and whoever belongs to God is to bear God's image. So therefore, although I can pay my respects and do my civic duty here, there is an incredible difference. There is an unconditional loyalty that we are to give to God alone. It is alarming to me and maybe to you how extreme talking points and tactics, some tactics, pretend to stand at the heart of the gospel in order to win your trust. It's not about that though. It's about winning and having the power. Be careful. There is a tactic that if one is not unconditionally loyal to a particular political party, then that means one is not loyal to God. Be careful. Be very careful with aligning with that kind of tactic. Christians then and Christians today may struggle with the lines getting a little too blurry and how we are to live out our convictions in the social realm. Caesar and Christ demands loyalty, both make laws, both regulate life, both have heroes, both have platforms, but remember this, that we must reserve for God a level of fidelity that supersedes all obligations. 
So let us not misplace the ultimate trust and commitment. The word of God reveals that the gospel should inform our patriotism. But that is not the same. And let us be careful that we go about it with patriotism informing the gospel. John 14, verse 6 reminds us of that truth that the gospel informs everything else. I am the way, the truth, and the life. This election matters, but neither party saves us. We have a civic responsibility. Whoever belongs to God bears God's image. So may our Christ-like character inform our patriotic duty. E. Stanley Jones, an American Methodist theologian and missionary, once said, Character is supreme in life. Hence, Jesus stood supreme in the supreme thing, so supreme that when we think of the ideal, we do not add virtue to virtue, but think of Jesus Christ, so that the standard of human life is no longer a code, but a character. The United States is in God's hands, and whatever outcome comes out of this election, we are in God's hands. We do not divide amongst ourselves. We disciple. We are disciples and we make disciples. Like Matthew 28 verses 18 through 20 tells us, Jesus said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. So I close with this. When we cherish and remember all that God has done and will continue to do because now we do have that confidence and faith because of all that he has done already. Through the centuries onto the cross for all of us, how will we respond to God in our decisions, in our positions, and in our deeds? Where are you truly placing your trust and commitment? Remember, God is with us through the centuries to the end of the ages. And as we are to remember in how we respond to God, I invite you today to participate in receiving Holy Communion. That is a way to respond to God's faithfulness as people who need redemption, who need forgiveness, who need to be empowered and filled with the power of the Holy Spirit so that we do things according to Christ. Receive the elements. Join me in this liturgy. In the beginning was the Word. And you say, the Word became flesh and lived among us full of grace and truth. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. 
you respond, whoever eats this bread will live forever. This is the body of Christ given for us. You respond, beaten and bruised by his wounds, we are healed. This is the blood of Christ shed for us. You respond, poured from the wounds we gave him a new covenant for our forgiveness. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. There is no love greater than this. This is the bread of heaven and the cup of salvation. Together we say, we are the body of Christ, redeemed by his blood. You may receive the elements, the crackers, the bread that you may have with you, and the water, the juice that you have prepared. Receive the means of grace, for God is with us. Remember always. God bless you.